Welcome everyone to the fourth episode of season three of the Northern Spin Podcast. I'm Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of Business Desk here in the Northwest. And here's my happy, clappy co-presenter, Chris Maguire, who's uncharacteristically angsty this week. Chris, what's going on? I am. I'm, I'm off my long run. There's a lot of things that have annoyed me in this last week, and uh, we're going to discuss them later on today. Uh, I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud, and there's so much to get through today. We might have to do an extra box set. We've had some lovely feedback to the podcast, including from a friend of ours, William Lee Jones, managing director of JW Lease, big Man United fan. Don't know if he's uh, don't know if you watched the big game on Sunday, but let us know, William, who said, I'm loving the Northern Spin with you and Comrade Taylor. Comrade Taylor, that might stick. Don't even think about it. Yeah? Yeah. It's always banter with you, isn't it? Is, oh. is that is that because you're a cricket fan? Listen, is it, is listen, it's, you're telling it's me all it's, this sledging stuff that you guys do. You're telling me it's banter. Have a word with William Lee Jones. He's the one who calls you comrade, I not know, me. I know, but you just love picking up on it, don't you? I anyway, do. right, I'm going to make you more angsty at, on, at this rate. So, what are we talking about today, and what's got your goat? Well, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday, so uh, it's coming out on Wednesday, which is International Women's Day. So, uh, congratulations to all the amazing women out there doing amazing things in the world of business and life in general. Um, so, it's topical that we should be talking about two women uh, in this uh, podcast today. The first is the journalist, Isabel Oakshot, who was at the centre of Matt Hancock's leaked WhatsApp message. We've been hearing a lot about that in the last week, and we're going to be discussing that in detail. And the second is the civil servant, Sue Gray, who famously produced a highly critical report into Boris Johnson and Partygate, who's been offered the job as Sakir Starmer's chief of staff. In our regional roundup, we're going to be talking about why our justice system is in a mess and why our mate... Ben Blocker-Houchen is back in the news. We're going to be talking about the forthcoming budget next week on March the 15th and the complete mess as well at HMRC. But before all that, we've got our usual thank yous to do, haven't we? Absolutely. To What Media for a start, who produce our podcast every week. They're the kings of video content creation. They're one of the main reasons why Northern Spin has appeared in the podcast charts in Bahrain, Belgium and France in the same week. Also mentioned... This is fair to say, there was a bit of a sound quality issue in last week's Northern Spin Extra interview with the brilliant Naomi Timpley, but such is what media's professionalism and commitment to excellence that they re-edited it and uploaded a new version. So I think in years to come, the original will be probably worth something. But um, but no, the remix, the, the special dub... You know, it was so good, we might even play it on Music Therapy on Tameside Radio. No, it was. It was excellent. It was excellent. And actually, um, without wanting to give too much away, what media are making the news again this week, so watch out for that press release. Now, we couldn't produce Northern Spin without our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen, who've uh, shared some really nice feedback about their association with Northern Spin and the value they're getting from it as well. I mention that because uh, we are looking for a third sponsor as well. We'll talk about Lily Shippen in part two, but Oscar share our commitment to integrity. Oscar is the award-winning recruitment consultancy delivering talent across tech, digital, life sciences, energy and construction. Oscar really is the name you can trust and I'm seeing him later on today. Ah, very good. Well, pass on my thanks, Chris. We're going to start by talking about the lockdown files, but you want to start by reading an extract from your own diary. What's that all about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and uh, and I'd just like to say, am I the only person who, whenever we hear this phrase, the lockdown files, you think of the Rockford files in the 1970s, the TV programme with the actor James Garner? Um, I always think of that, but maybe it's just me. It now, is just you. I think. Just me. Um, I write a diary, and uh, I call it the dad's diary. I started writing it when my wife was in labour with our first child 22 years ago, and I update it every so often with stuff that the girls have done. Um, so I wrote this April the 5th, 2020, two weeks after Boris Johnson put us into lockdown. 
As of Saturday, 4,313 people with coronavirus have now died in the UK, up 706 on Friday's figure. The stories are heartbreaking. A 13-year-old boy in London with no existing health conditions died and none of his family could attend the funeral. On Friday, a five-year-old died. It's tragic. Two nurses died whilst treating COVID-19 patients. Wow. So what's the significance of that in the context of um, the lockdown files? I wanted to try to provide some context and to remind myself of what a horrible time it was. Um, in 2020, I didn't want my kids to go to school. I worked from home. I wore a face mask when I went into the shops. When I went to bed at night uh, and I said my prayers, I always, uh, I always, you know, hoped I wouldn't get a cough, hoped my family wouldn't get a cough, hoped we wouldn't, uh, you know, need the, uh, need the help of the NHS who were at breaking point. I was scared of the rising death toll and I'm not afraid to admit it as well. Um, I'm not an apologist for the government. I'm absolutely not. They made some horrendous mistakes. But I just think we've got to be careful. When we look back on 2020, we don't look at it through the prism of 2023 with hindsight. That's the danger. That's yeah. the point I'm making. Sure, fair point, fair point. My, my, my reactions reading some of Matt Hancock's messages, which have been leaked to the Daily Telegraph, just reinforces a lot of what I felt at the time, which was a rising anger. At first, yes, yeah, fear, definitely. Just shock, really, at the at the number of deaths piling up and the and the human tragedies, in particular the deaths in care homes, which I think in retrospect were entirely preventable. And I think they're on Matt Hancock. I think he's got a lot to answer. But all the time, <clears throat> what I suspected was that the government was dominated by public schoolboy preening narcissists like Johnson, Cummings and Hancock himself. And that's entirely been vindicated by what we've been, what's been revealed from Matt Hancock's leaked WhatsApp messages and his every utterance, frankly, ever since. Um, just say, you mentioned care homes. My uncle died, <clears throat> was a resident of a care home and uh, he, uh, he died of COVID whilst in a care home as well. Um, it just, you know, statement, full disclosure, he'd been in a care home for about 12, 13 years. He wasn't a well man. And, uh, you know, he died and it subsequently turned out he had COVID. I'm not sure whether or not that's what killed him, but that's what it says on his death certificate. Now, let's set the scene, actually. And I'll ask you to set the scene, if I may, Michael, about the Daily Telegraph's lockdown files and the role in particular of Isabel Oakenshaw. Well, yeah. So cast your mind back, everyone. Former Health Secretary Matt Hancock decided to write his memoirs from the time during COVID called The Pandemic Diaries. The WhatsApp messages that he wrote at the time have now been leaked to the Daily Telegraph, a newspaper, let's not forget, that was entirely hostile to the lockdown restrictions that uh, were in force at the time. Um, <clears throat> now, you want to particularly pivot on the role of the journalist involved, don't you? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And for some reason, Matt Hancock chose Isabel Oakenshot, a well-known critic. Oakshot. Oakshot, uh, Isabel Oakshot, a well-known critic of the lockdown, uh, and uh, as his ghostwriter. Now, she signed, it was something like a non-disclosure agreement. There's some confusion as to whether it was or it wasn't, but it was a legal document, an NDA, and Hancock released his catch of WhatsApp messages to her. Now, after the book came out, she gave around 100,000 of these WhatsApp messages to the Daily Telegraph, and here we are. Now, I cannot emphasize enough that the, the, the bigger issue here is the government, the way they handled COVID, the way Hancock acted, his behavior, the, the, the informality and the callousness of some of the messages that are exchanged between government ministers. There's no excuse for it. I'm not excusing it at all. But I think in terms of um, Isabel Oakeshott, she's, I think she's two-faced. I think she's deceitful. I think she's hypocritical. Former health minister James Bethel summed it up best when he said, I think Isabel is a terrific journalist. She's just not a very good friend. 
I think it highlights, I've mentioned it before, Hancock's complete lack of judgment, why he would chose Oakshot to ghostwrite his book, given her views on the lockdown, is almost unbelievable, until you remember that Hancock appeared on uh, I'm a Celebrity in the Australian jungle and ate a cow's anus for £320,000. Before the lockdown files, I thought Hancock's talent didn't match his naked ambition. Nothing I've read in the Daily Telegraph since has changed my mind. However, it's worth remembering that Hancock had agreed to hand over the WhatsApp messages to the official COVID inquiry. So it wasn't a question of him trying to conceal them. I think the Daily Telegraph did what any newspaper would do when handed a scoop on a plate. I would have done exactly the same as well. They make the very, very, very fair and legitimate point that the official COVID inquiry isn't likely to report until after the general election, while Sweden wrapped up theirs in 800 pages last year. So rather than debating the terms of reference, we do need to learn the lessons fast because there is a good chance, horrible though it seems, of another pandemic. However, I think Oakshot comes out of it really badly. I've listened to her countless times try and justify her actions in a series of media interviews. But the moment the interviewer asks her a question she doesn't like, she throws her toys out of the pram. She ended one interview with Kathy Newman of Times Radio after being asked about her salary and why she decided to work with The Telegraph on the story rather than her colleagues at Talk TV or the affiliated newspapers like The Times, The Sunday Times and The Sun. What do you think about, <clears throat> what do you think about that and what do you think about her generally? Um, I, th- I think this is distracting from what the real issue is, which is Matt Hancock's conduct. Um, I think she's become a very convenient hate figure in all this. I feel very uncomfortable joining in a media pile-on against a woman journalist. I think um, I think it's convenient. But given the stakes and the shaping of the story, what it really should be about is the rank incompetency of those who are meant to be protecting us. They've very selectively used a lot of the, uh, of the leaked WhatsApp messages relating to the lockdown. What they haven't done is really drilled down into... Um, into some of the other things, and, and I'm just slightly perplexed as to as to what it is that you've got against Isabel Oakshot. Absolutely nothing against it, nothing at all. I think she's a really good journalist. I absolutely do. do. Yeah, do I do you? actually. Yeah, Why, I what's do. She, what's she ever done? No, I think in terms of what I what I respect her for is she's got a passion to to you know to the truth. But her motives, that's what I would question. Um, It's really important as well that we don't make this about a gender issue. It's not, for me, a gender issue. It may be for other people. It's not for me. Um, And and once again, it's topical. We're talking about this today. It's International Women's Day. We are blessed with some brilliant, brilliant female political journalists at the moment. The likes of Katie Balls, Isabel Harbin at Spectator, Beth Rigby on Sky, Sophie Ridge on Sky, Laura Coonsberg at the BBC. I mean, these are really, really good uh, women political journalists. I, I do think you're you're in danger of sounding like how can I hate women? My mum's one, or I've got daughters, which I'm I'm, I'm sure you I'm sure you're not doing that. I, I just want I just think it's very convenient that people want to blame her and make the story about her, and I really really would prefer not to. I think it avo- it stops us looking at what the real issue is here, which is at the risk of repeating myself: Johnson, Hancock, Cummings, and that entire absolute mess and Simon Case as well the civil servant involved in all of this none of them none of them seem like grown-ups and we're going to be talking later on about Sue Gray being appointed to the um, potentially as Keir Starmer's chief of staff it just reiterates the point that there weren't grown-ups running the country at the time and let's not forget as well it was Kate Bingham's uh, vaccination program that she rolled out um, which was the actually the, the turning point in the country really gripping the problem before that I'm afraid it was a complete shambles. 
Well, one of the things and I'm this really... Is, this is really fixating on lockdown as well. Let's not forget, you know, where's the inquiry? Where, where, where is the interrogation of the facts and the messages that Matt Hancock was sending to Michelle Moan? I mean, that's already been cited by David Conn's piece in The Guardian earlier this year about, uh, uh, about contracts for PPE equipment and stuff like that. Where, where's the scrutiny about that? The Daily Telegraph don't want to go down that route because there's probably too many of their mates who are all demanding that lockdown be rolled back. One of the things I'm passionate about is the role of journalists. I think journalists have got such an important role and I am, I am unequivocal in the fact that journalists, I think, in my view, should always protect their sources as well. And I look at Oakshot and I look at her charge sheet. I mean, she has a track record of burning her sources uh, throughout her career. She absolutely does. Does that mean she's not a good journalist? No, it doesn't. But look at her charge sheet. In 2013, Vicky Price, um, the, uh, the former partner of ex-Liberal Democrat Cabinet Minister Chris Hume, was jailed after telling Oakshot how she conspired to help him avoid a fine for a motoring offence. She apparently told Price, and if Oakshot wants to come on this podcast and defend herself, she absolutely can. She's appeared everywhere else. But she apparently told Price there was little chance of her getting prosecuted for helping her with a story. But after it was published, both she and Hume were jailed. Oakshot tells the world she wasn't paid a penny for ghostwriting Hancock's book, but she got a percentage of the serial rights when the when the when the book appeared. Uh, you know, when it was serialised in the Daily Mail, she's going to get a share of the royalties. But I've been maybe a journalist. She's a bit embittered because it's not sold as many as they hoped. No, but I've been. I think I heard a result that said I heard a figure that it sold four thousand copies. Who would want to buy that book? I've been a journalist for more than 30, 30 years. I'm, I'm passionate about this. I don't want to be one of these people who said, oh, I've been a journalist for millions of years. That's not what it's about. <laughs> I've, been asked, I've been asked, I've been asked, Michael, countless times to reveal my sources. I've read countless times. I did exposés when I was at the um, Yorkshire Evening Post in Leeds when I did a piece about care homes who were being targeted by groomers way before the scandals ever emerged. And I was asked at the time to reveal my sources. I never would. What, by the police? Yeah, yeah, I know, by the council. I did exposés of the police. You know, I did stories about police officers who'd been on the sick or who'd retired through medical uh, medical conditions who were working as nightclub bouncers. I never, ever revealed my sources. I was lucky enough to win a few awards. I've been lucky enough to win national awards. I've been successful. I've never, ever burnt a source. That's what this is, Michael. This isn't a gender issue. This is about burning a source. And the way she deals with her sources, it is despicable. There's no excuse for it. And none. Right. Like I said, Chris is on a rant today. But you, you also said that she presents early on, you said she's hypocritical. I think that's a really strong charge. Um, I think you know what you're dealing with with her. And I think Matt Hancock was naive, given everything that you've just said about uh, her dealings with Vicky Price. But I don't think it's true that she paints herself as anything other than, other than that. You know what she's about. You know what her politics are. Her partner's Richard... Trice, the founder of the Reform Party, UKIPPER, um, she's unashamedly was against the lockdown. She's been consistent. I don't get why the media and how it operates is more of a story here. I know it's important to you for all the reasons that you just outlined, but I'm intrigued why there is this selective leaking by the Telegraph of Hancock's messages. What about his con contacts with Alex Bourne, his former neighbour, and I believe his pub landlord, who was fast-tracked for PPI contracts, or Michelle Moan, who he was known to have been in contact with? She, she somehow has become part of the story in a, in a much more inflated way than I think, frankly, she deserves. At the moment... 
at the moment, I've I've looked at the Daily Mail, the um, Daily Telegraph's coverage. I think they've done uh, a, a really good piece so far. But the real explosive stuff, I don't think, has come out yet. I really don't. She is only part of the story. Oakshot is only part of the story. Um, the she's Telegraph done... aren't interested in Tory corruption. No, that's that's the Guardian's. Yeah, and, and the thing is, with what her, they are interested in though is that they callously put us into lockdown, which they were against for you know from their own. They've got philosophical perspective. They've got a massive agenda here. They are selectively leaking certain certain WhatsApp messages. We're not getting the full picture. And if we think we're getting the full picture from the Daily Telegraph, you know, we're much mistaken. We're absolutely not. But but look at Oakshot. That should be the focus. But look at Oakshot. Oakshot's saying she's not the story. She's saying she's saying the bigger issue here is the the lockdown and the the wider COVID uh, you know uh, actions that were taken at the time. I get that, but she's putting herself front and center of the story. She's doing so many media interviews and i tell you one thing as well um that uh, and i think she comes out of it badly for lots of reasons as well but i'm going to take you back to 2000 i covered a murder case in bristol i was working at the bristol evening post for a guy called paul hunt and he murdered a 22 year old girl called jenny king as she walked home alone in 1998 it was horrendous i got really friendly with jenny king's family and i and my hand was shaking when the jury came back and found paul hunt guilty of a murder it was horrendous he got life in prison as you would expect him to. That judge in the case was probably the best advocate, the best member of the judicial system I've ever heard. Her, 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 her words, her descriptions were withering. She was so incisive. And that judge was called Justice Hallett. Now, why is that relevant for? Yeah, I'll tell you why. Why are you telling me that? Because Mrs. Justice Hallett is now Baroness Heather Hallett. She's overseeing the UK COVID inquiry. In response to Oakshot's outburst, in which she speaks of a suggested or hints at a whitewash, Hallett has insisted the investigation will not be a whitewash. And, and I see that very much as a shot across the bowels of Oakshot, who, who has subsequently praised her, Hallett that is, in every subsequent interview. Now, I compare... Oakshot to another investigative journalist, Carol um, Cadwallader, who, who is currently being sued for libel by the multimillionaire Brexit backer, Aaron Banks. She is a quality journalist who, as far as I can tell, protects her sources. She was back in court last year. Oakshot is no Carol Cadwallader. What do you think? Well, I'm very pleased that the Court of Appeal found in favour of Carol Cadwallader on two or three, two of the three points that she was... Um, counterclaimed against by Aaron Banks. She's really properly been through the ringer on this story and she deserves support for being so courageous. Support, should I hasten to add, that was not forthcoming from the likes of um, people like Andrew Neil, who often held themselves up as um, champions of media freedom. But again, I have to say, the story for Carol's stuff that she's been doing in The Observer and from her TED talk that um, she was particularly targeted for is about the deployment of dark money in politics. And these are people that, um, that, that, that operate with absolute impunity. The behavior of powerful people and holding them to account should be something, should be held up as a real virtue. And she's not been afraid to put her head above the parapet and, and say that. And as a consequence, she's been sued. And I think it's taken a really heavy toll on her. I think, uh, yeah, she deserves all of our support. Now, we're going to be talking about Sue Gray. She became a household name, of course, when, um, uh, when she was commissioned to do an inquiry, which was... Another example, I think, of Boris Johnson kicking the can along the road. He always does, does this. He makes up whatever comes to his mind in a lot of media interviews just to get rid of the of the issue that day, just as he did when he stood up in Parliament and said, I was appalled when I saw those, you know, those interviews that some of his colleagues were doing about 
you know, they, they were doing those media training exercises, weren't they, about how they would answer questions in press conferences about breaches of lockdown, and they were laughing. And he said, I was appalled when I saw that, when actually in the full knowledge that, you know, he'd been attending parties. You, you he said, always gets through these things. So at one point, Sue Gray just became a punchline. Yeah? 100%. It? Yeah. yeah 100%. So just give, give me a brief summary about why why we all know the name Sue Gray and why, you know, it's someone very much in in Labour's team that everyone will have heard of, despite all your protestations to the contrary. What, whatever anger I feel towards Oakshot, and it's the way she burns her sources, <clears throat> it's 1% of the anger genuine hang, anger and, 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 and visceral anger, I feel, towards Boris Johnson. So in 2022, civil servant Sue Gray published a report into Partygate, which was very critical of Boris Johnson. Fast forward to last week, it emerges Gray has been offered a job as Sir Keir Starmer's chief of staff. That is a key role. We'll talk about that, a key role. Now, the Tories are furious, claiming Gray um, couldn't have been impartial, and they want to know when the discussion started. That's only a brief precy of what happened. What's your take? <laughs> yes, it is. There's, there's quite a lot of detail to fill in there. You've almost done the Tories' work for them by simplifying it, uh, I have to say. When Sue Gray was asked to conduct an inquiry, it was because she was, to quote Jacob Rees-Mogg at the time, she was a civil servant of unquestionable standing. And she became a household name because Boris Johnson would routinely say when he was scrutinised about what he knew, when he knew it, and what else he was up to during lockdown and the parties that were going on inside number 10, he kept saying, I can't say anything at the moment. Wait for Sue Gray. Now, my contacts who've worked in the civil service under different political leadership all said the same thing. Wow, she's tough. She's thorough and she is unimpeachable. Her report was highly critical of Boris Johnson. Now, it wasn't, wasn't like me spouting off on a podcast because I'm, to quote you, too labourish. It was as a result of thorough investigations into parties, drinking cultures, breaches of rules. She is a key appointment for Labour precisely because of all those attributes that, and Keir Starmer, as, as he said on numerous occasions, is, has been looking for a chief of staff for quite some time, and she's going to prove to be, I would imagine, a very, very good choice. The Tories, to their absolute shame, have gone full conspiracy theory on this and have frankly sounded deranged. I personally think this is evidence, again, of grown-ups getting back in char charge of our public sphere. Um, I think I would, Rishi Sunak would be highly well advised to take the tack of Francis Maud, a former Conservative cabinet minister under both Thatcher, Cameron, and, and all John Major, and all points in between. In an excellent letter to the Times, he said, Sue Gray isn't the first civil servant to move to a political role, and she won't be the last. Labour are very lucky to have her. I think we should all just calm down a bit. What do you think? Are you going to come right into the defence of the Tories on this one, Chris? Absolutely not, Michael. No, okay. Absolutely not. My, my, uh, and incidentally, Francis Moore, grandee of Conservative politics, yeah. he spoke at an event that I hosted and we sat around a dinner table, you know, all, all, all um, evening. I mean, he goes back a long, long way. Um, I think Sue Gray's appointment, clear statement of intent from Keir Starmer and a government in waiting. He knows it will cause ructions, but he's done it anyway. I don't think the optics look good. They don't look good. But actually, for me, what I want is I want to know that the next government has got the right people around them to make the right decisions and to make the right calls and to act with integrity. And I think, and I can't speak for Sue Gray. Sue, if you want to come on this podcast and give your side of the story, Stop let us know. That. Absolutely. But what I would say is that I think she is so disillusioned with the way 
the Conservatives operated, especially under Boris Johnson and that poor excuse of a Prime Minister called Liz Truss, that she's decided actually she's going to throw her hat into the ring with the Labour because she thinks they'll just do it better. I don't, uh, I, I think that when they get Conservatives like Jacob Rees-Mogg, Brendan Clark-Smith, Scott Benton, you know, in Blackpool South who complain about her impartiality, they have seriously, seriously missed the point. Sue Gray, unless, unless uh, I've missed the point, didn't have parties at 10 Downing Street. Boris Johnson did. Gray only conducted the inquiry because Cabinet Minister Simon Case, who is getting a lot of coverage at the moment, and he's got Import, serious questions Important to distinction here. He was a Cabinet Secretary. He's a senior civil servant, Simon Case. And just, just, to, just to pick you up on one tiny thing that you, you mentioned there, this isn't Sue Gray crossing the floor. She's not a politician. She's a civil servant. She acts and operates under any political leadership, but she is making the move to go and work for the Labour Party. Yeah? yeah, it's an important distinction. Same with Simon Case. He's not a politician. He's a civil servant. Yeah, and and the thing with Simon Case is is he would have conducted that inquiry that Gray had to conduct, but he had to recuse himself after allegations of his involvement in an online quiz. And if you do look at the WhatsApp messages and his involvement, he's not acting like a, a civil servant, in my view. Now, the Tories' complaints smack of a party that still feels hard done by over Partygate. They can't get it into their thick skulls, and that's not all of them, but this is the right of the party. They can't get it into their thick skulls that they were at fault. It was unacceptable. They think they're onto something because the Daily Mail, you know, at the front page, is this proof the Partygate probe was a Labour plot. I mean, what planet are these people on? The likes of Rhys Moore, Clark Smith, Benton and all of Boris Johnson's supporters. It's embarrassing given the fact that on the same day that the news emerged or the day after that, um, you know, that Grey was going over to the uh, to uh, Labour, um, there was a report that came out that said that Johnson may have misled Parliament over the parties. This is clearly a smokescreen tactic by the Conservatives. This is the same Boris Johnson who broke cover last week to say he couldn't vote for Rishi Sunak's Northern Ireland deal. He only cares about himself. According to reports of the weekend, Look Boris on, Johnson... Just pick you up on that. So Boris Johnson said, that he might, he's minded not to support Rishi Sunak. And then here's the killer thing about him, which backs up your point. He, he didn't want to go on a rebellion if there was only 20 nutters rebelling against it, if it was too small to be a significant rebellion, because he just has these fantasies about coming back on his white charger to reclaim the Tory leadership. Yeah. I mean, it's never about a point of principle on the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's always about the max, the moment of maximum political advantage for him to make his return. Yeah, you're right. He's appalling. He's, a, he's talking about, if reports are to be believed, a hundred honours in the uh, in his resignation honours, including wait for this. His dad, Stanley, is set to receive a knighthood. That, that, that is as obscene as it gets. And if you want to see how deluded some people in the Conservative Party are, then listen to the car crash interview that Rother Valley's Tory MP, Alexander Stafford, did with Nick Johnson on Radio 4's... Uh, sorry, sorry, um, Nick uh, Robinson on Radio 4's Today programme. And it's important we're accurate as well. You know, Robinson had to cut short the interview after he, um, that's uh, Stafford, Stafford yeah. refused to answer questions about Boris Johnson and party great. I think Rishi Sunak, genuinely, genuinely, I think he is doing a decent job, evidenced by the Northern Ireland deal that he negotiated with the EU. Now, we're recording this on Tuesday. We're expected to hear more details of new laws to tackle the issue of small boat crossings today, Tuesday. But you cannot win a war with the likes of Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Gavin Williamson, Suella Braverman in your ranks. It can only end one way. Yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to um, the Guardian podcast with 
on politics that John Harris presents. And Gavin Barwell, former minister and a chief of staff for Theresa May, after he lost his seat in Croydon, said this week that the Tories only have two modes, complacency and panic. And I think, frankly, they're panicking at the moment and they're starting to sound ridiculous. They've actually, they've gone full Trump, haven't they? Yeah. On, um, and I think it's going to be a real test of Rishi Sunak, whether he stands up to this lot, the people that you've just mentioned, or he gets rid. I think he really does need to um, to realise that he can portray himself as a genuine break with the past, to put some grown-ups in charge, to use the real political capital of his own that he's built up in the last week to clean up politics and use it as an opportunity to go for Johnson, to get him kicked out, not to vote down or recuse the... Um, the, the inquiry that the Standards Committee are likely to put before Parliament and kick him out, kick him out of politics for good. Yeah, Force I, a by-election in Uxbridge, get him out of politics and say, you're 100 people on your Prime Minister's honours, forget it. If You're a disgrace to politics, get out. Soon, and I think it'll do him a lot of good. It'll take politics out of the gutter. And frankly, you should say on the Sue Gray um, the point as well. Yeah, good. It's good to have good people. I'm sorry that she's not working for us anymore, but he understands why she does why he does it. He can't though, and I don't think he will because he's weak. He won't do it because of the backbench influence that he has. But because if, he's weak, if he gets obviously, if this deal with Northern Ireland uh, and the DUP come back and they're happy with it, if if we can make some progress or he can make some progress over the small boats crossing, if all the industrial action that we're seeing, the the um, the heat can be taken out of that situation that gives him a lot of credit um now that would be the time for him to basically say boris johnson we don't want you anymore he is the only person who can stop these resignation honors lists and if he allows stanley johnson to be given a knighthood i for one would break a habit of a lifetime and i would take part in a demonstration against it because it's absolutely obscene and on that note I think Chris needs to go and have a lie down and a cup of Ovaltine and we'll be back after a short break. Well, welcome back to Northern Spin. Now, Michael, before we uh, talk about our next sponsor, Lily Shippen, I do need to give a quick shout out. It is International Women's Day on Wednesday, and I'd like to uh, wish uh, What Media's super talented producer, Olivia Barron, who recorded this show a couple of weeks ago and held Michael to account over his constant touching of his facial beard, uh, like to wish her a happy 20th birthday. Am I right? Is it 20? I think so. It could be 30, um, but either way, happy birthday to Olivia. Now, Michael, you've interviewed thousands of CEOs and MDs during your illustrious career. In your experience, how important is a personal assistant or an executive assistant? Yeah, they're really important. And all MDs and CEOs that I speak to say that they couldn't function without their PA or EA. And they use them as a sounding board and they're a huge part of their success. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Michael. Lily Shippen's a specialist recruitment agency for HR and business support staff with bases in Manchester and London. Mm. Lily and recruit a range of roles, including from executive assistants, personal assistants, um, office managers, receptionists, HR business partners, and many more. In fact, they wrote a piece this week in terms of could technology kill off executive assistants in business cloud? They say not. Now, they work with businesses of all sizes. They're experts in placing exceptional people into exceptional businesses. They don't just know how to recruit HR and business support staff, but they know when to recruit. So if you're an MD, a CEO, a business leader in the North, or anywhere for that matter, remember the 
the name Liddy Shippen. Right, in a moment we're going to be discussing on manoeuvres, but there are a number of regional stories that we just need to discuss first. Where are we going to start? Well, last week the public inquiry into the Manchester Arena attack found MI5 had missed a significant chance to take action to stop the uh, 2017 bombing. It's reported back after six years after the bombing. I mean, uh, I know there have been a couple of interim reports since then, but nearly six years after that dark day in May 2017. Now, they didn't say what the significant chance was for reasons of national security, but we know what the consequences are. 22 people, innocent people who'd been attending a concert by Ariana Grande died. I know you want to talk about that and the fact that the wider justice system, as we know it, is in a state of mess. Yeah, I, th- I think there's, there's, there's obviously some individual instances of uh, incompetency, negligence, and um, and and you know, miss, missing the point, really. But um, I do want to talk about the implications of austerity without trying to overly politicise this. Um, we're going to talk about HMRC later on in the show as well and the the dire state of their infrastructure. Just just think, though, Chris, you, you, you've had some instances, of, of, as you've said on this podcast today, of dealings with the police, with the criminal justice system um, and with trials that you've covered as well. I think most of us, as we go about our daily lives, have very little to do with the criminal justice system. So we don't see what a terrible state it's in. I think it's been a real shock to people to see that the NHS is on its knees, because I think at some point, either we know people who work for it, or we have to access its services ourselves, and we find that we've been put on waiting lists. But I think the the justice system is one of those public services that is in such a dire state as a result of constant cuts and austerity. It is on its knees. It is a broken system. I know this directly because a few years ago, one of our sons was a victim of of a very serious crime. It was bad enough what happened to him, but the callous, incompetent and amateurish way that Greater Manchester Police conducted this investigation which we solved for them, by the way, for the most part, was absolutely atrocious. Worse still, it was a culture of book-passing excuses, and we were very quickly pushed down the complaint route to urge us to make it about cuts to their budgets and write to our MP to complain. We were lied to, the book was passed, and while violent gangs roamed free in Stockport, and one of them nearly killed someone in another incident, suddenly they were interested, but it was only to cover up their previous incompetence. The more that we spoke to people about our experience, the more it became clear that this was normal in Greater Manchester. Burglaries, car thefts, assaults, all just became too hard to bother with. The police, frankly, had become the uniformed wing of the insurance industry. They had no interest in solving crime. They just handed out a crime number and shrugged their shoulders and complained about how hard things were for them. It was only when we were assigned a solid, competent detective, after we'd made a serious complaint about the most senior officer that had fobbed us off, that we were um, that we made any kind of progress. Even then, they managed to bury the extent of their incompetence that nearly caused a man to lose his life. The arena attack, frankly, shocking though it was, didn't surprise me. It was further proof, horrific proof, of how badly vulnerable we are in the face of the incompetence of some of our security services, the very people who are meant to be keeping us safe. Now, I'm tracking a number of court cases at the moment, and the backlog and the availability of judges and court time is absolutely horrendous. 
Yeah, <clears throat> uh, well said. I, I didn't realise that um, about what happened to your son as well. But as a parent, I know how I would react in the same set of circumstances. We but have more genuine offers to help us from private security contractors, from prison officers, and from people who said, oh, we'll take them out onto the moors and give them a good shoeing, which I do not advocate, by the way. Yeah. But there were very serious people said that, oh, we'll administer justice in our own way. And it's like it's going gonna, it's gonna to actually <laughs> encourage vigilantes to take the law into their own hands. In, in my experiences, there are good journalists and bad journalists. There are good police officers and bad police officers. I mean, what I would say, and I've not got any personal experience with Greater Manchester Constabulary. I mean, they've been, um, they, 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 they got under a lot of criticism, quite rightly. They've now been removed from His uh, Majesty's Inspectorate from special measures because they were in a state of yeah. absolute... But Chris, uh, all the things that I m mentioned on that uh, in that piece that I've just said there that they were all the uh, institutional priorities that the new chief constable has said had, had actually um, uh, had actually fallen by the wayside un under the leadership of his predecessor. Yeah, absolutely. And and listen, you know, they still need to be held to account, as does everybody, because a bit like like you mentioned with the NHS, when you need the police, you believe that they'll do the yeah. best they can do to protect you and your family. Yeah. Um, but um, I think we've spoken about a lot of heavy subjects this yeah. week. But anyway, what about Ben Blocker Houchin? Ben Blocker Houchin. Are we still blocked? We are, I, I believe we are I'm still blocked. Checking. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, it's worth saying, of course, that uh, for those people who are just uh, new to the show, Ben Blocker-Houchin blocked myself and uh, Michael on our personal Twitter accounts, even though we didn't follow him. And the fact that Chris was a bit of a fanboy for him as well. <laughs> so what's he been up to? Well, Blocker-Houchin was furious after Labour councillors blocked. I mean, the irony that Blocker-Houchin was blocked. Um, he, was, he, he had plans to create a new mayoral development corporation, an MDC, which is significant because there was one in Stockport, wasn't there? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and, he, yeah, he doesn't want one. He doesn't yeah. want one in um, in Teesside. He, he, sorry, he does want one in Teesside, but the Labour councillors don't. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the Labour councillors were unhappy that a number of the local authorities' assets would be transferred to this new mayoral development corporation. Now, it's worth reminding our listeners that back in January, local MP Alex Cunningham, Labour MP for Stockton North, who, it's fair to say, him and Blocker Houchin don't get on, took advantage of parliamentary privilege during the Prime Minister's question time to call for an inquiry into the transfer of assets in a company which is set to deliver the Teesworks Freeport project, which is Blocker Ben Houchin's baby. Now, incidentally, Teesworks uh, Teesworks Freeport project is, is something which he's heavily promoted on his social media channels. He's categorically, this is Blocker Ben Houchin, uh, has denied any wrongdoing. And uh, uh, but what it highlights, I think, is that Houchin makes everything party political everything and you're going to get a degree of party politics but where you see really good politicians working is they work with they work with all sides of the political spectrum um we've spoken before that uh Houchin doesn't like sharing a stage with labor mayors i spoke to um uh, Driscoll, Jamie Driscoll, at the uh, recent event in Manchester, Labour MP up in Newcastle, Labour sorry, Labour Mayor yeah, up yeah, in uh, yeah, Newcastle, yeah. Uh, and, and he said that uh, they always invite uh, Ben Houchin, but he always says no. He has a reputation of being thin-skinned, evidenced by the fact that he blocked us on Twitter, despite the fact we don't follow him ourselves. At the same time, and all the time, the Tories are in government, I think what can happen is Houchin can go to Michael Gove for help. Um, I think where he's going to struggle is if Labour get in. Um, now, Houchin said that the Mayoral Development Corporation would have brought in £8 million, uh, £18 million worth of investment into Middlesbrough. So he vented his anger on Twitter, which prominent... How do you, how do you MP, know? 
Uh, well, because <laughs> he because, hasn't blocked you on every account. Because he, he hasn't, as of yet, blocked yeah. us on uh, Northern Spin, but he has blocked us on our private accounts. Fine. Which prominent Northeast MP do you reckon rode to his defence? I'm going to have a, a wild guess and say it would be Simon Seven Weeks Clark. Absolutely. Liz Truss's wingman. For seven weeks as uh, levelling up minister. Yes, yeah, spot on. Uh, Houchin took his case to the current levelling up minister, Michael Gove, who backed his plans for the Mayoral Development Corporation. So that is going to happen. It was always going to happen. Is there anything to see here, Michael? Um, yeah, I think there is. I, I, I think the whole mess up in Teesside is, is worthy of constant scrutiny. I love what Private Eye do for it. Occasionally the Middlesbrough Gazette do stories on it as well. And I think it's worthy of further interrogation because I don't think they operate in a clear and accountable way. I think they do ride roughshod over decision-making bodies that exist up there, like local councils. And I don't think they operate as a true collegiate combined authority in the way that the West Midlands, Greater Manchester uh, and the Liverpool City region do. Although Liverpool City region is, you know, it's all totally dominated by Labour. I think, um, you know, the, the Tories in... Um, Tories in Bolton and the Liberal Democrats in Stockport sort of lean in to the decision making in Greater Manchester. I don't accept that point that you make that late that he is stuffed if Labour get in. I know what you mean because he's he obviously just keeps going, keeps crying to Govey to give him special favours. But I think um, I think if he actually has to change tack and provide genuine evidence based cases for further investment, a Labour government will look kindly on that and will act in accordance with the wishes and the strategic objectives of the people of the Tees Valley, rather than, you know, playing the same sort of party political game that um, that Blocker seems to have been doing. But you said in a couple of podcasts ago that uh, you said his endgame, he wants to be Prime Minister. Now, I don't know if you meant that or you were, or you were joking, but the point is, is that he's being tipped as one of uh, Boris Johnson's um, appointments to get uh, an honour yeah, in his that, resignation. That, that's why I think he'll turn a peerage down because I think he's ambitious enough to think he could go all the way to the top, yeah. I think, and this is the point, you said I've got a bit of a love for Houchin. I actually think Houchin cares passionately about his region, generally does, but you use the word collegiate there. The problem is he sees everything as it's us against the world and that's not ultimately how you drive change. It's not. No, completely, yeah. So... Um, now, we've spoken a lot in recent episodes. So there is something to see there. Yeah, yeah. What, what else? What else have we got something well, to Well, we've spoken a lot in recent podcasts of uh, Northern Spin about Labour's uh, MP selection process. It's fascinating. Keir Starmer's been urged to step in the uh, into the selection process for a Labour target, Redwall seat of Broxtow in Nottingham, if you don't know where that is, after Greg Marshall, a leading candidate who had the support of eight trade unions, was blocked from standing, prompting the entire executive committee of Broxtow constituency Labour Party to resign. Anything to see there, Michael? Yeah, I think it's only fair that we keep covering these stories. It's the same pattern. But it's fair to point out that Mr. Marshall unsuccessfully stood for Labour in 2017, when, of course, Jeremy Corbyn won the general election, and 2019, losing to Conservative incumbent Darren Henry in the latter context. Um, I think Anna Soubry used to be the MP for Broxter, who was one of the MPs who joined the Independent Group for Change. And I've met Anna a few times. She's great fun. In other news, Elsie Blundell has won the selection in Haywood and Middleton, a key target seat. I think me saying I wasn't supporting her must have had a positive effect because I've been the, the literally the kiss of death for three fantastic female candidates in the north of England in recent contests who weren't successful. But well done to Elsie. I've, uh, I've known her a long time. She used to work for Simon Danchuk, the MP for Rochdale, and she's a councillor. 
on uh, on Rochdale Metropolitan Borough Council. So yeah, I think she'll make a great MP. By the way, yeah, I've got visions of like you know you seeing these parliamentary prospective candidates approaching you at events and them literally running the other way to avoid the kiss of Michael Taylor's death. Um, I, I think I think she's got a great chance of winning that seat. It's a way for the majority, and uh, it's clearly a target for the Labour Party, Haywood and Middleton. Can uh, I ask you a quick question? And we're going beyond our northern northern remit. Um, London Mayor Sadiq Khan has caused a bit of a controversy after describing protesters who oppose the uh, ultra-low emission zone, that's UKEZ expansion, as being, I quote, far-right COVID deniers and, 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 uh, and uh, Tories. Um, essentially, drivers of the most polluting cars and vans must pay an extra £12.50 a day or face a fine. And the uh, London Mayor wants to extend the scheme, but lots of workers have complained. Now, we know about the problems of trying to get these clean air zones in Manchester up and running. What do you think the Labour Mayor's up to? I think he wants to tackle pollution and make moves to raise revenue. I think um, he needs to be a little bit more careful with his language, though. I think it's uh, you can't just go banding around and accusing anybody who disagrees with you of as being far-right COVID deniers and Tories, even if people like that are are protesting and it becomes a magnet for people who are against him because he's the mayor. I think he, I think he's probably under quite a lot of strain. I, I, just to put it in context, Sadiq Khan gets an enormous amount of hate and I think that is not unrelated to the fact that he's uh, of Pakistani heritage. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, th I think it's fair as well. No, no, I, I think it's fair. So let's go to our section on manoeuvres. Who does your slightly simplistic understanding of the term on manoeuvres lead you to this week, Chris? Well, I'm calling this mini on manoeuvres <laughs> because I don't think my suggestions quite tick all the boxes of being on full manoeuvres. Now, last week we mentioned Conservative MP for Stafford, Theo Clark, who has been deselected after returning from maternity leave. Anyway, she's been all over Twitter um, this week outlining what she's been doing. It's a bit like telling your teacher you've done your homework. And the reaction on Twitter uh, reflects that. I think it's a bit sad, but it is understandable. So who's your next contender? Okay, well, once again, this is, uh, you mentioned him, Richard, uh, is it Tice or Trice? Tice. Tice, leader of the Reform Party, formerly the Brexit Party, partner of Isabel Oakeshott. Um, I think he's on mini manoeuvres on two fronts. And it's worth just explaining the background. The Reform Party was born out of the Brexit Party. They are targeting unhappy Conservative voters, and they are probably targeting unhappy um, Conservative councillors as well, who look at the uh, the way the wind is moving and they've decided, actually, you're better off joining the Reform Party. So he's making a concerted effort. Some conspiracy theorists suggest that what Isabel Oakeshott's doing is to try to, uh, with, with her, uh, her shenanigans in the last week, is to try and drive people to the Reform Party. Can't confirm that, can't deny it, don't know. Anyway, Richard Tice has been retweeting anything in support of Oakshot. Um, but, 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 and when one of her supporters is Julia Hartley Brewer, you are seriously struggling. I think what's even sadder is he's appealing on Twitter for candidates to stand in May's local elections. I mean, we're into March and he's appealing for candidates to stand in May's local elections. I think this is mini on manoeuvres. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, let's, let's talk seriously about the, some, I think we should provide some context and clarity for people who are going to be watching the news in the next week or so leading up to the budget about what's really going on. Because I think that's, I think that sort of exemplifies on manoeuvres, if I'm honest with you. It's about what's really going on, who, who's making moves that don't always appear to be, um, to, to be clear what they're up to. So the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, will announce his budget on March the 15th, uh, a week on Wednesday. And you're going to be seeing a lot of manoeuvres between now and then from mayors, who are going to be looking for their devolution deals for levelling up money, 
for skills and businesses. Um, we've already had Johnny Mercer and Ben Wallace debating, frankly, in a, quite an unseemly way in public about the defense budget. We've had the accountancy industry saying that HMRC isn't fit for purpose, making a very, very impassioned case. Um, we've got a new report out this week from Rishi Sunak and Michelle Donnellan, the new science minister, making the, uh, making the case for science funding. So I see here a glimpse of trying to frame the national conversation in the next week um, and, and a return really to the Tory leadership of grown-ups that Sunak might, just might, be on a move to renew adult relationships as well with the European Union with, and with other countries after the joke premiership of Boris Johnson. It might be wishful on my part, but I really, really hope so. So the budget's a week away. Chris, are you expecting anything? I think it's one of those where everyone's saying it's going to be terrible so I think it won't be as bad as people have made out one of the complaints I hear from companies all the time is about the skills gap and the challenges around recruitment I mean clearly we've got two sponsors who work in the world of recruitment clearly the b word that politicians don't want to talk about Brexit has an impact so the government has to do something to get the millions of uh, economically inactive people back into work especially the over 50s both of which we are but we are both working um, who've retired now I expect hunt to incentivize a return to work especially if the over 50s um one thing i do uh, want to ask you about is moving the conversation so on just slightly on the over 50s i know I, I know what you want to talk about but um one of the instances on that one is actually the lack the lack of support for women in particular um in their in their 40s and 50s who may be experiencing um the symptoms of the menopause and the lack of support and the lack of companies and employers either in the in the public sector as well actually having active menopause support policies. There's some brilliant piece of research that Optimum Research have done with the support of AJ Bell, a Manchester-based financial business, looking into actually how many women have seriously considered leaving the workforce or reducing their hours as a result of the, of, of the, of the difficulties that they've faced and the expectations that they've have placed upon them from unsymp unsympathetic, in many cases, employers. So... I think if if that forms a, another plank of um, of some incentives in the budget, other than just you know another task force being set up, then I think that's all to the good as well. Could you just mention mention that? Because you mentioned yeah. the menopause, and ten years ago, if you'd asked a bloke about the menopause, I dread to think of the sort of responses you would have had. What I've realised now is what a massive issue it is. Everyone talks about suicide as being the biggest killer of men under the age of 45, even higher than cancer. What people don't necessarily always realise is the impact that menopause has on women and the increased suicide rates among women who are menopausal or premenopausal as well. There's a lady who really opened my eyes called Nikki Chamberlain. It's Nikki with two Ks. And what she's done is she's recognised, she recognised herself that she had brain fog. Um, she recognised the issues that uh, you know the menopause was causing her. And she's working with business and she's looking to work with more corporate businesses as well about the impact that menopause has on their staff and it's really enlightening yeah. and a former BBC journalist who's now working at um, AJ Bell she she's spoken about that in Business Desk today actually she has indeed and, uh, and I think we have to have these conversations but Women cannot have those conversations on their own. No, they need good allies. They need good allies, and and they need they need men as well to to to, to open their eyes to it as well. Yeah, it, it ultimately comes down to having really solid um, support from your employer and and policies within within those sorts of businesses. Um, I want to talk to you about something that's very important to you actually, and one of the uh, one of the nice things about this podcast is getting to know each other because um, I hadn't realised things about you that uh, you, you know until until I sat next to you, and your faith is very important to you. Um, I want to talk about 
faith and religion in politics. Now, the SNP elections for a new leader in full swing. Um, there's expected, I think there's going to be the first uh, debate fairly soon as well. And uh, it's, can politicians be open about their religious beliefs? Kate Forbes, Hamza Youssef and Ash Regan are the names on the ballot for the SNP leadership elections to take over uh, from Nicola Sturgeon. They're due to open, I think, next week. Kate Forbes, who is a member of the Free Church of Scotland, was criticised by some over her views, including her belief that having children outside of marriage is wrong, according to her faith. What's your view on this? Well, I listened to a very hostile interview that she did, I think, with STV News, and I genuinely wondered what all the fuss was about. She said that's her view. Now, you're married. I'm married. For the second time, I hasten to add. That is how... Kate Forbes chooses to live her life. That is her moral framework, that she didn't want to have children until she was married. She doesn't legislate for that to be imposed on anybody else. She doesn't condemn or judge anyone else as a result of having those values and having that those values that are driven by her faith. Now, personally, I'm a Catholic, and I get really weary of people chipping away at those with a Christian faith and making all kinds of assumptions about what the Bible says and what makes people think and do in a particular way in politics. Um, you know, I am driven by an absolutely love of humankind and an appreciation that every single human person is created in the image and likeness of God for all their flaws, right? If you accept that as a standing point and you put people first, I don't think that's a bad way to live your life. I've got a policy that if you don't help at least one person in the day, you've wasted the day. And uh, and I don't ask people what their religious you know denomination is. I don't ask about gender. I don't ask about um, sexual orientation. You know, you just help people because it's the right thing to do. And with that, we go to a short break. And when we come back afterwards, we're going to lighten the mood with what we call the fun bit. Love one another. That's what it's all about. Love one another. Well, welcome back to the third and final part of Northern Spin. Now, your friend or friends, Andy Spinoza, who's one, uh, took part in the TEDx Manchester event at the weekend, which Sandy Lindsay absolutely loved. She waxed lyrical about it on uh, Twitter. He was talking about his new book, Manchester Unspun, which has been doing really well. Um, on uh, I saw a post that he put on LinkedIn. I think it's the number one bestseller on Amazon, if it's not. Yeah, in the biography section. That's absolutely brilliant. I'm yeah. so chuffed for Andy. But is really he big does. in Belgium? That's the question, like Northern Spin. <laughs> yeah. And uh, another friend, actually, of you and uh, of me of the podcast damon hughes podcaster and uh, psychology professor what have you yeah, been up to well I, I was really touched when andy actually messaged me and said yeah it went really well i was really pleased he said and damon hughes came up to me and said on my, that it was my recommendation that he's actually read andy's book so i, I, I felt like a bit of an influencer when he told me that yeah. Um, anyway what have i been up to i had the best dinner <clears throat> i've ever had in the SK6 postcode. In fact, probably one of the best dinners I've ever had, ever. Because we've got listeners, as I mentioned before, all around the world now, they won't know where SK6 no, it's is. it's Marple. It's a, it's a local restaurant. It's called Fold. It's in Marple Bridge. Now, we were invited along with, with Neil and his wife, Rachel, and my wife, Rachel, uh, to Fold as a sort of an influencer's foodie evening at Fold, this, um, this fantastic restaurant that's just opened on Lower Fold in Marple Bridge, and it was absolutely incredible. We had the full different tasting menu, and the, the chef would come along and explain what all the different dishes were, the combinations, where the wild garlic was picked from. It was like a storytelling, and it was fantastic. I would, I, I reckon, 
that's going to get a Michelin star, which is not something I would have confidently predicted anywhere I would get in, uh, in, in my area. So hashtag sold on fold. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you said earlier that uh, we're talking off air that you've given up crisps and chocolate for Lent. Yeah. But then you have 16 courses at a restaurant, so you're not exactly missing out. No, but I mean, yeah, it, it was it was brilliant anyway. I've also been to Leicester, a very pleasant city, which I'd probably not been to too many times before, except for football. I saw Richard III's bones, two totemic statues, one, of course, of the Plantagenet himself, and one of the boss, Vikai Srivan Prabha, who died in a helicopter crash outside the Leicester City Stadium in 2018. It's called the King Power Stadium now, of course. And... Um, yeah, it's amazing, really, how because we were talking about statues, weren't we, in context of Jack Walker, former owner mm. of Blackburn Rovers, who has a statue outside the Blackburn End at Ewood Park, and uh, and you were saying your your fella at Derby ought to have one, but you know if he achieves a league title win, like uh, like Jack Walker and like Vicai did for Leicester City, then. Yeah, maybe he'll get a statue too. David Close, David Close, who I spoke to yeah, on Sunday. Yeah. Oh, good. good. Yeah. Did you tell him he's on the podcast? Yeah, I did tell him actually, yeah. Oh, he no. was very impressed. Maybe we're big in Derby now. Absolutely. Um, on Blackburn, uh, sorry, so I didn't manage to go to TEDx because I was working at Blackburn Rovers on Saturday where I interviewed Howard Webb, the referee, about VAR coming to the championship and the quality of refereeing. I also interviewed, and you like this, Megan Hornby and Millie Robertson from the Blackman Rovers ladies team. And that's what they're called, by the way. I, yeah. I always prefer to use the word women than mm. ladies, but that is the name of the team. And I also interviewed Martin Tiny Taylor, who was part of the 2002 Car uh, Worthington Cup mm. winning side at, at Rovers, who the manager at the time, Graham Souness, used to describe as great son-in-law material. But that's not quality I want in a centre-half. <laughs> um, you mentioned Graham Souness, actually, and uh, I thought his rant after Liverpool beat Man United 7-0 on Sunday at, uh, um, we well, were just talking about generally, he was talking about the whole... Uh, well, him and know, Jamie Carragher yeah, were absolutely purring, weren't they, on yeah, Sky? Yeah, 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 yeah. Poor and, Gary Neville. Yeah, and he was having a go at Gary Neville. I'm not, I'm not here to defend Gary Neville. He can look after himself. But it was completely ridiculous talking about the fact that that's six Premier League games that they've lost this season. Yes, it is. Man United are on the way up. That was a shocking second half performance. But don't judge a, a summer by one swallow or whatever the phrase is. Oh, come um, on. Give them their moment. It was just ridiculous. It was completely, it was like it was like clickbait for Sky TV. Now, I have had a busy week as well. I hosted yeah, yeah, an event. Yeah, what have you been up to? Well, I hosted an event about something called Chat GPT. Before I tell you about it, have you heard what Chat GPT is? And I'm not being disrespectful to you. Yes, I do know what it is. And based on this week's content, it is likely that Michael Taylor will be interested in the potential applications of Chat GPT for business, marketing, and communication. He may also be interested in its use for content creation and writing, given his background. I'm not going to carry on, but you get the gist. I put in, what would Michael Taylor of the Marple Leaf blog think about Chat GPT? And that yeah. was the kind of drib, dribble of nonsense that it came up with. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is, I'll explain what it is for our listeners who don't know. So it's artificial it's, intelligence, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, chatbots have been around for a long time, but they're AI powered. Uh, the company behind Chat, uh, Chat GPT is called OpenAI. They've been heavily backed by uh, Microsoft to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. Now they can generate content and its potential uses are unlimited, which is the reason why content writers, poets, songwriters, musicians like Nick Cave, teachers, etc., are so worried. You can imagine teachers getting loads of essays from their students all the same. 
same. Now, I'll give you an example about the way it works. My father-in-law, um, Keith Ely, asked ChatGPT to write a poem in the style of Wordsworth about whiskey. I don't like Wordsworth, but I do like whiskey. It came back after a few seconds. I'll only read out the first two paragraphs, and I'll do it in the best voice I can. Oh, whiskey, spirit of fire and might, from grains of earth with water made right, brewed in oak barrels, aged to perfection, a nectar of gods beyond all convention. In glasses it glows with amber hues, a liquid of dreams with flavours to choose. From smoky to peaty, sweet to crisp, it brings a smile to the drinker's lips. Now, that's rubbish. <laughs> that is absolute drivel. Uh, it got me wanting a whiskey. I'm, sorry, I'm not being mean. So no. I'm not breaking my Lenten promise by being mean to you. No, no, no. But, but that is rubbish. Yeah, but but the thing is, a lot of content that's created by content writers isn't very good. Now, in my view, what ChatGPT can do, it can do a lot of the grunt work. You still have to check the output, but you can't ignore it. And I hosted this event last week where we spoke about it. And the general view was it can do about 80% of the heavy lifting, but if you rely on it completely, you'll come unstuck. It was just, if you've not understood about chat GPT, then, then you really need to wake up. Yeah, um, okay. I'd like to mention a couple of people, actually, because yeah. the one thing that's happening with this podcast has been going now for nearly six months, and it becomes a historical source of record, because hopefully these podcasts will be up there for years to come. Baroness Betty Boothroy died last week at the age of 93. She was the first woman to be elected common speaker, born in Dewsbury in Yorkshire. She started her working career as a professional dancer. Um, once again, it's ironic the way this has fallen this week, but we're talking about International Women's Day. And then, you know, Baroness Betty Boothroyd really was a, uh, you know, an inspiration, wasn't she? Yeah, amazing. Amen to that. Though I'd like to mention a very, very important person in my life who died at the weekend, peacefully at home, blissfully. Peter Mount, CBE, an incredibly generous man, warm, strategic, thoughtful, hardworking, right until the end. He had a successful business career, latterly as the CEO of Thorn Fire Protection up in Oldham, led the Oldham Training Enterprise Council as well, always gave lots to his community, notably in Manchester when uh, he retired from commercial life to become first the chair of Hope Hospital in Salford and then the Manchester Hospitals Trust, where it's fair to say, he built the new children's hospital and led the appeal on that. He also chaired lately. The last email I got from him was about the Marple Local Neighbourhood Plan, and he was involved in the Marple and District Probus Club. Formed in 1972, they offer a chance for retired people to meet socially and to converse, listen to talks and go on trips. And when Peter, I bumped into him at church and he said, could I do it at short notice to come along and speak to this group? He went, well, the average age is about 80. I thought he was joking. They genuinely were, but it was a room full of wisdom, full of people just like Peter. I could see why they were his friends. And, and it was very, very hard to say no to him. He was always hugely supportive of me for doing this podcast, for loads of other things that I did in my career. And the world has lost a fantastic man a fantastic granddad and just an all-round wonderful human being. It's really well put. It's really well put. We talk a lot on this podcast, and we have this week, about politicians and people who are who 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 are not doing it for the right reasons as well. And it's the reason why we, we need to try to uh, redress the balance as well, which is the reason I want to yeah, give a shout-out. Celebrate out. the best of life. Absolutely. I want to give a, uh, a shout-out to a local councillor called uh, David Lancaster, MBE, who's thought to be England's current longest-serving councillor after 57 years. He sits on Salford City Council, first elected at the age of 21, which is amazing. He's now seven. So uh, well done to this, David. 
Yeah, any film and TV recommendations, Chris, to send us off into the night with? Absolutely. I watched Creed 3 at the cinema on Sunday. Enjoyed okay, that did you one. fall asleep? Yeah, no, I like that one. It was a good, uh, good 8 out of 10. I mean, the premise is ridiculous, but <laughs> but all Rocky films are, uh, or Rocky-themed boxing films are. Um, now, TV-wise, me and Mrs M were getting a bit uh, fed up of watching Better, the programme on BBC, with Andrew Buchan, who I mentioned last week, who's been in the news again this week for all the wrong reasons. Um, so we were getting a bit cheesed off with that. So we, I said, I had this moment of wisdom. I said, hey, why don't we watch this programme called Downton Abbey? And if you haven't seen it, it first came out in 2010. Absolutely fantastic. Recommend it. Very good. Very good. So I've probably been reading more than I've been watching in the last week. Uh, Neil Tague has written a fantastic feature in Big Issue in the North. There's some more great content from Big Issue in the North out this week as well. Neil's written about Andy Spinoza's book. It's a really, really lovely feature about a great book. Um, we we're hoping to go to our uh, to move our chippy tea this Friday to Buxton and then go and see the, com- the so-called comedian, Stuart Lee, but he's sold out. Andy sold out on the Saturday as well, which is great for him, but disappointing for us because I do really, really love Stuart Lee. But right now, I am just ridiculously obsessed and in an expectant mood about the final series of Succession. Please tell me you watch Succession. I have not watched the first two <laughs> series, but but the way I see that is I see that as a positive because you're you're literally hanging on the moment you can watch the third series, and I've still fourth. got the joy. The fourth, I've still fourth got the joy. Final, I've got the joy of watching these other series. Well, I had the joy of when I watched the third season. We watched the first two back to back in between as we caught up. And I've got six. I've got it's six. Brilliant. Series. It's probably one of the best things I've ever seen. It was recommended to me by my friend Andy Westwood, and. One of my great rules of thumb, actually, Chris, is if you don't like succession, we can't be friends. Okay. Well, I'll give that a go, but I've got six series of Downton Abbey and two films to watch first. (laughs) Right. That's all for episode four of the season three of Northern Spin. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at at Northern underscore Spin one or watch us on YouTube. Thank you to What Media for recording this podcast. Our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen, and to Elliot Taylor, for providing the music, New Beginnings. My name is Michael Taylor. My name, as always, is Chris McGuire.